With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Speaker McCarthy, because that's all I've been... Well, I'm sorry. Did I say Speaker McCarthy? That I misspoke. <laughs> all right, here we go. Welcome to Advisory Opinions. I'm Sarah Isger. That's David French. And I promised y'all months ago the the highlight of the semester, if you will. Uh, and it's finally here. Our Supreme Court preview with the Lisa Blatt and Sarah Harris. I do. I feel weird calling you Lisa, like you're Lisa Blatt, even though it's not like there's a whole lot of other Lisas running around Supreme Court circles. But it would be like calling Lisa Frank. Lisa. Like, nope, it's Lisa Frank. It's Lisa Blatt. Miss Blatt if you're nasty, right? (laughs) So welcome, Lisa Blatt, Sarah Harris, Williams and Connolly power team of the uh, Supreme Court world. Thank you guys for joining. Thank you. We're super, 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 super psyched to be here. (laughs) Lisa is a Texan by birth, by culture, by cowboy boots. Sarah Harris and I went to law school together. Um, and David's just here. He's hanging out. <laughs> I'm here. Not a lot to contribute, but there he is. I just, I'll listen in. I'll enjoy listening in. I, I'm looking forward to it. Front row seat. It'll be fantastic. David, you're now in my hometown, Nashville. So we have that at least in common. The Texans against the Nashvillians. Oh, Sarah, I like you so much. So this is not going to end well. This is not going to end well for you, Sarah. <laughs> I know, don't, don't mess with Texas, but like, I, I guess I'm daring fate. <laughs> so, Sarah, you are fully aware then that Texas is Tennessee's first and only colony because you have the author of the Texas Declaration of Independence, a Tennessean, the first governor of, and president of the Republic of Texas, a Tennessean, uh, Davy Crockett, a Tennessean. Notice how they all left. No, basically, that's what colonists do, Sarah. They colonize. (laughs) And so I just, when I go to Texas, I just, you know, uh, walk in, walk walk past the border saying, you're welcome, you know, so. James K. Polk, ardent expansionist. Yeah. I mean, we conquered Texas, essentially, for America. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. I'm 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 already enjoying this podcast. What's that Margaret Thatcher quote? If you have to tell people, you're not. <laughs> we'll get to some of my feminist theories later on. Uh, Lisa and Sarah being two of my favorite feminist icons in the legal world. But first, we're gonna start with the boring stuff. We're gonna do some law here, some Supreme Court term. Uh, Lisa, I'll start with you. <laughs> and look, we're going to get to some of your better, um, more amazing uh, cert petition lines, argument lines, all of that. But big picture, we're still getting to know this Supreme Court. How do you think when you walk in to argue a case of what the lineup is, who you're looking at, um, you know, is it 6-3? Is it 3-3-3? Is it just a grab bag? What's your overall thesis on this court? 
So there's my thesis to the public, and then there's my thesis as an advocate. My thesis as an advocate is I don't do whatever you just said. It's it's always the same court to me. It's the Supreme Court. It's nine brilliant jurists whose vote I need, and I don't like I don't like the thought of I'm um, talking to individual justices. In terms of the public and the big uh, the big cases, race, religion, guns, abortion. Um, yeah, it's a six three court, and sometimes it's a three three court depending on where Justice Kavanaugh is leaning and sometimes Justice Barrett is the chief. You have an interesting background as well. Um, You worked in the Solicitor General's office before going into private practice for a long time. You were in the SG's office. Do you see a difference from that perspective and how you view the court? Yeah, I mean, it gets me a little emotional when I think about it, but there's no one who will ever replace Justice Scalia. And that's the biggest difference. He was probably, he's just, I don't know how to explain it as an advocate. It was pure joy, um, just unadulterated joy and fun. And there probably will never be another justice like him in terms of just arguing. And I probably got my sort of style because he just loved to joust and have fun and really get into it. Um, but yeah, it's a totally, I mean, it's different. The old chief is different than the new chief. And, uh, you know, each of the justice, Justice Stevens had his own style, just as Breyer did. So they all had oral argument styles. But the biggest difference to me in terms of an advocate is the loss of justice. And Sarah, you also were in government. We were actually at DOJ at the same time. It's very annoying to have two Sarahs with H's, both doing these things. So we will try. Hopefully you guys know my voice on the podcast. And Sarah's the other Sarah who doesn't have my voice. But still. And now, Sarah, you've argued all these cases at the Supreme Court since you left DOJ. How do you think of the court? And why is Lisa wrong? (laughs) Lisa is 1000% correct on many things, including that you don't uh, go into the court thinking you know the lineup or that you can jettison any votes. Um, Even hostile questions from justices who you pretty much know are not voting for you are also chances to nail down the, the people who you think are in your camp. So yeah, I think from the advocate's vantage, you just go in and answer questions, try to get your points out, be responsive, um, try to persuade people. And with respect to the court writ large, also correct, I think that it can be a 6-3 court. Uh, you know, that that's not a novel concept. I think the more interesting thing is just, as Lisa said, uh, where will Justice Kavanaugh and the chief go in in some of the cases? How eager or not will they be in cases that present opportunities to overturn cases to actually do so? Obviously, Loper Bright with Chevron on the potential chopping block will be like the next kind of test of that. So just for listeners who aren't uber familiar with the two of you, I mean, Lisa is a dyed-in-the-wool liberal Democrat who has... Uh, committed various apostasies and heresies. But nevertheless, Sarah is whack job conservative. I mean, a total lunatic. <laughs> um, so I direct this question to Sarah for that reason. Why do you think Kavanaugh and Gorsuch come out so differently on so many of these cases? I think it's a mistake to think of conservatives as uniform. They're just like part of what are the, I mean, even Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, who are very, even more similar in terms of, I think, where they start off in terms of originalism, like reach like very different results, especially in cases involving uh, Native Americans, Indian law cases, 
I think it just shows if you're starting from a methodological vantage that you share, you can easily reach different results depending on like how you how you read original sources. Like it's not a sort of like you must buy into the bottom line kind of kind of um, situation. And for Justice Kavanaugh, I think he is, you know, you you can tell from his opinions, especially some of his separate writings, more conscious of practical consequences. And Justice Gorsuch is not. Uh, he he, I think he avowedly does not like focus on that at all. So I think that adds another factor that can sort of push them further apart. So um, let me let me ask this of, of both of you guys. So start with Lisa. Uh, longtime advisory opinions listeners will know exactly where we stand on sort of what are the most important cases of this term. And I'm not going to go and use the phrase, well, I'm only going to use it this one time for briefly, text history and tradition, because if I talk about it again, people are going to throw their phones through a window because we've talked about it a lot. Um, as you're looking at this term, a lot of people are pegging sort of Rahimi as the most consequential case, potentially. What are you thinking of, say, the three or four or one or two most consequential cases this coming up this term? Well, I think Rahini, I mean, won't be that consequential because I think there's a narrow way to rule for the government in terms of a facial challenge. This uh, criminal defendant had both the finding of individual dangerousness and not just uh, based on the statutory prohibitions of guns, just if the order bans you from beating up your wife or spouse. But the, um, so I think that will go off narrowly. The court will have to dance around sort of the mess they made in Bruin saying you have to find a closely analogous, uh, whatever that court said in Bruin, <laughs> whatever they said about history. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, I think the, there's still be the ongoing issues with the voting rights cases. I, I like watching the sort of the social media cases to me are the most interesting because um, I like cases that appeal to everyday Americans that see, you know, the, that they understand. Um, as a technical matter, the Purdue pharmacy case is, uh, I mean, the Purdue bankruptcy case is super interesting doctrinally, but I just, the social media cases dealing with, um, you know, whether public officials who go on Facebook or state actors or whether Florida and Texas can tell social media companies how to, how to rank or how to disclose how they rank uh, content um, and whether the Biden administration can talk to the social media companies are more interesting. Um, the Miffy case presumably will be on, and that's a case that I think half of America cares deeply about. <laughs> Which one's that one? So, the abortion case. The oh, um, oh the abortion Miffy drug. Oh, the Miffy. Yes, I think everyone calls it Miffy. <laughs> I don't know what the. I can't pronounce the name. I just think you know. Sure, it's got this issue of FDA regulation and stuff like that. But any case with the A word in it is going to be you know. Right. It's a big I deal. mean, Lisa, I'm shocked you're not giving any love to SEC in-house adjudication. But I actually because think she knew you would, Sarah. She knew you'd be all over that administrative state. <laughs> I just don't care about that subject, even though I teach separation of powers with Paul Clement. It bores me to tears. <laughs> I think it's like probably the most consequential one, though, because if you look at the term from the vantage of which cases are most likely to change the status quo, uh, I think that the court Chevron. is yeah, very Lover. likely to like at least of, of all the separation of powers options on the table, likely to say that administrative law judges cannot be structured the way they are right now. And just even for going forward consequences for the government, I think that's just a big deal. Like who can fire administrative law judges of which there are like almost 2000 in the government. It actually matters a lot to people. Um, and I think it could matter to the outcomes of these cases. So 
that would actually be my pick, even though it's not sexy. A loafer's a little bit like Dobbs. The court will have to decide if a 15-week ban on Chevron is what they want to go with, or they just want to go with a complete <laughs> overruling. So we'll have to see what happens. Or they could just make it like the lemon test uh, and say they had already overruled Chevron and you just didn't notice. <laughs> Yeah, that's it feels like that's the further zombification of Chevron is in the cards. Because, uh, you know, when Lisa talked about the narrowing, there's a way to to deal with Rahimi that's quite narrow. There's a way to deal with Loper Bright that's quite narrow as well. And by the way, I'm thinking for disting- distinguishing between the Sarah's Tennessee Sarah and Texas Sarah. I love, I love that. Or another... Another synonym for that would be good Sarah and bad Sarah. So, <laughs> Do you know we even have the same middle initial? She's Sarah M. Harris and I'm Sarah M. Isger. Like there's nothing. Yeah, it's Sarah all the way down. Um, by the way, speaking of that SEC case, uh, so Lisa, Sarah, and I are all also married to uh, attorneys. And I do want to talk about like all the... Again, my feminist manifesto is coming. But yesterday, Husband of the Pod and I took a little hike and our conversation revolved very much around the SEC case. And I thought to myself, like, man, if anyone like overhears this, they're like, what losers? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure, Sarah, you and Jeff are um, just sitting and talking about that every night over wine after the kids go to bed. Oh, yeah. That's what we talk about after the kids go to bed. <laughs> what will happen to in-house adjudications at the SEC? That's, for. <laughs> that's what keeps a marriage strong. That and also yeah. golf. <laughs> uh, all right. Y'all have some interesting cert petitions pending as well. Uh, Sarah and I were texting about them. I'm dying because somehow, Lisa, you end up getting these cases that almost reflect your personality. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) You get the fun ones, right? You had Angry Cheerleader. uh, You had the Jack Daniels dog toy. um, You had the Andy Warhol uh, case as well. This time, I read a cert petition involving CBD oil where you said, and I'm quoting, (laughs) some people even say it's the new avocado toast. (laughs) (laughs) Whose line was that? (laughs) Obviously, when you say whose line is that, the answer is always Sarah. And I will say, um, if I could just go off a little bit on Sarah, I think if we have any brand or style, certainly for, you know, cases too, a lot of it is Sarah. It's her unique uh, storytelling, her unique turns of phrases. Some of my favorite lines ever in ever in all briefs come from Sarah. But that uh, is definitely, I love the way she comes up with these killer lines and avocado toast is just is, is one of them. I will take credit though for the Warhol case. I discovered that case when it was in the district court and just, you know, match made in heaven. People think Sarah is a, a super serious, um, you know, nerd lawyer because she's so smart. She is. But in fact... Um, she is all those things, but she has this killer dry sense of humor where like, you're like, did was that a joke? Was she serious? Oh, no. Because um, it's so funny. It's like, it, it, I love it. So yes, I actually already could have guessed who wrote Avocado Toast. I like to think of it as I'm the beauty and she's the brains of our duo. Lisa has a more overt humor though in arguments and it's it's a joy to behold, <laughs> truly. Especially in person next to her. It's like, that, that was great. <laughs> So that's a great, I mean, I want to go back to some of the cases, but that's just a perfect segue, good Sarah, to um, what is so 
compelling about um, when I'm when I'm reading or listening to Lisa's oral arguments, you seem to have a kind of, I don't know, I'm looking for the right term, a familiarity, uh, a confidence, a boldness in approaching the court that a lot of the other advocates don't have. Now, some of them, I could easily imagine, I've never argued in front of the court, I would walk up there on the, to, to that podium the first time I did it, petrified would be like the, probably the mildest version of how I would feel. And I wouldn't feel that sort of sense of confidence to be myself in any way. But you seem to have a sense of confidence that you can be yourself in front of the court. Uh, ha- walk through that process. How, how did that occur? So, yeah, let me just say a couple things. First of all, I'm extremely nervous when I'm up there. I'm very scared. I'm very insecure. I'm not confident. Second of all, I don't know how to be any other way of sort of my philosophy, and I've said it a million places, someone's going to die at the end of the day, and I don't want it to be me. <laughs> someone's going to lose this case, yeah. and it's my client, and the that person's life is on the line. And I remember it was, I think it was Patty Millette, I think had some, Judge Millette had some great line about that, that it was, she was the only stand, thing standing between her and doom for her client. And I remember Justice Ginsburg said when Judge Millette became Judge Millette, she said, we just lost one of our tigers. So, and I thought Mm. that was the nicest thing anyone could ever say is that, you know, be called a tiger. Um, I will say because a lot of people, and you're a podcast, I do hear a lot of criticism from one particular podcast about my style. And here's what I would say to that. Before you criticize me, I do think it you should ask yourself, have you ever argued in front of the Supreme Court? And if you haven't, why? Whether it's you lack the skills, talent, or interest, or just you have a different passion, you know, take a step back. And second of all, try to come watch me at argument. And actually, before you criticize it, look at the justices and see what they're doing. They're usually smiling at me. Um, Part of it, it's almost like you hear me. Someone said something once that I... I show better in person than on the phone. <laughs> I'm like, I just, I, I don't think that I'm acting any different to them than I am to you. I'm just trying to explain to them why we should win and being as direct as I can. And I don't, I, I definitely regret a couple things. I regret interrupting Justice Sotomayor when she was trying to ask me a very helpful question. But generally speaking, I'm just trying to do my job and answer questions. I don't think people should try to emulate me because their personality is not like me. They should just be whoever they are and advocate. But it does, I do find it annoying that sometimes people criticize me and they're just, they're either stupid or motivated by some political agenda. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting you talked about, well, this is kind of who I am. And because I look back on my own legal career and I look at the migration, I think as I became a better lawyer was when I began to shed the persona, which was, this is how I'm supposed to be. Like there's some image of what I'm supposed to do versus this is who I am. And I'm better at being me than I am at being not me (laughs) and bringing myself to the argument. David, if I could spend or had unlimited money, I would be Maureen Mahoney. I would love to sound like a Midwestern <laughs> or Paul Clement, where everything they say sounds so reasonable. I, I could try, you know, and I do think justices and judges find it somewhat refreshing. I would not recommend 
you know, part of the other thing, I'll just say two other things about my, my style. One is I'm a woman and two, I'm old. And I think it helps for both of those. I do. I think it, it is harder. You know, normally men have all the advantages in the world, but I think sometimes it's easier to, to talk about things like pornography and sex when you're a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Probably correct. Probably right. <laughs> I mean, let's not give short shrift though to your colloquy last term with Justice Alito about dogs peeing on your leg and dog poop. And I mean, that was nice. I love, love my exchange with Justice Alito. You're in an interstate commerce. Yeah. <laughs> but he's generally smiling at me. He knows that I'm just, I, I don't, I mean, look, I like nothing more than arguing in front of Justice Alito. It's the most fun <laughs> I've ever had. It's great. It's so much fun. <laughs> no, Sarah, well, I do regret, I do regret asking him how old he was. Like, <laughs> I didn't, I shouldn't have said, I don't know how old. That was like, no, don't do that again. <laughs> we don't regret it. We don't regret it at all. No. no. No, I mean, I think what I said on our podcast was if you're Jack Daniels, can you imagine? Like, they didn't even consider anyone else to argue that case, uh, you know, if <laughs> given the topic, like, you have to have Lisa Blatt. And I think if people criticized the brief because I had a riff on, you know, the poop emoji. And it's like, uh, did he, like, what are you, like, life's too short. Life is way too short. I mean, my personal fear of the case is they saw Lisa, they saw that it involved a dog toy and also dog poop, and it was like an auto grant. That's right. Who who wouldn't want that case? (laughs) Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And now, Lisa, do you wear your cowboy boots to argue? Because I've never gotten to see you argue in person. No, I know. I wear my cowboy boots mainly in, in the Fifth Circuit and then at work and, you know, on the weekends. So all the other time. Yeah. No, I, I mean, Justice, Justice Ginsburg uh, gave me very good advice my first year before my first argument about how to dress in court. And she, the advice she gave me was, do you want a judge you know, or justice, not looking at you, but listening to you. Don't, don't wear anything or do anything to distract them. You just want them hearing what you're saying. And so you kind of, and I gave this advice, you know, I coached debate for many, many years. And that was my advice to people. You don't, before court is not the time to show off anything other than be as bland as possible. And just, you know, you're there to get a job done. You know, that's funny because Ted Cruz has this story about when he became Texas Solicitor General uh, and went and talked to the chief justice and he was wearing his cowboy boots. And I think Ted, that he w- it wasn't arguing that day, but Ted said something like, don't worry, I won't wear these to court. And the chief said, you're the solicitor general of Texas. You have to wear cowboy boots to court. That's what we would expect. 
Um, so just know that there is some uh, pedigree for Texans wearing cowboy boots. I, I you know, I, I just have to take. I mean, look. anything Justice Ginsburg's ever told me is, is uh, the word of God. And she has basically has instilled in me, you, you really want to be almost invisible when you're physically, you know, physically invisible when you're arguing. Sarah, how have you approached argument? Are you scared when you're there? Yes, I'm a rational person. Anyone who's not scared is probably doing it wrong. Um, of course you're scared. And then yeah. you start talking and answering the questions and you're so excited to be up there answering questions about a case that you've been obsessing over that you stop being nervous. But yeah, if you're not scared like in the lawyer's lounge and the and the you know hours beforehand, I maybe I don't know what's going on, but you had some good ones last term. You had the Puerto Rico uh, Financial Oversight Management Board one that made big splash. But of course, the case that I liked the most that you argued was the bad boyfriend case, um, the the bankruptcy uh, Barton worker. Yeah, the discharge petition where she, husband. Yeah, oh, it was her husband. <laughs> they flipped the house fraudulently. Yada yada. Is she on the hook for his bad behavior? Uh, answer: Yeah. Yes, that was that was a that was a tough one, but um, a fun argument just because the justices were super engaged, um, and you know it was it was great to be up there. And I also think the fact that Sarah's had five arguments in what three years of private practice is incredible. Um, she's never she was never in the SG's office, and to have argued five cases like that is uh, truly extraordinary. Well, also thanks to Lisa because well, that, she could have Okay, kept that's a really... <laughs> so Now we got to get into that. Lisa that's like, that's the reason you're both yes, here. Yes, I'm so glad. Well, if you thought I was, if you thought I was rude before, wait till you hear, wait till wait so, till keep going. <laughs> so good Sarah keeps coming up with the great segues, unsurprisingly. Um, so this is a great segue because we just talked at the last, at our live podcast when Sarah came back about this, uh, you know, and we barely, barely got into it at all, but sort of, this whole process of mentoring, when are you, when are you making a decision that a a more junior attorney is going to step up to the plate when you could always take it yourself, like you, you have that authority, you have that ability to do it. Um, But at the same time, you want to cultivate younger talent. And so kind of walk through, walk through that process. How, how does that work? And if, you know, any sort of advice you could throw in for the, because we have a lot of young, a law student and young lawyer listeners um, on sort of how they can prepare themselves, position themselves to be ready when the, the, the bell rings, so to speak. So unfortunately, I don't think most people want to cultivate other talent. So I just think your premise is wrong. <laughs> Um, most people are selfish, uh, egomaniacs, and most of them are men. And I think I too was like that before I got to Williams and Conley. I mean, I always wanted, like, I've been working with Sarah at another law firm. I always uh, promoted her, made sure people uh, under sort of under me got opportunity. But it was much more of a transactional issue. It was like, this is the way you keep good people. This is the way you recruit unless you give them enough reward but I never felt like it was a calling until I got to Williams and Conley. Literally, it was just a self-interest thing. You kind of have to help other people who are going to leave you if you don't give them arguments. And Sarah was very adamant when she started working with me. She wanted an argument. I kind of said, yeah, whatever. And she's like, no, Lisa, get on the phone and call a bunch of, you know, courts and get me an argument. So Sarah was very, very, uh, you know, persistent. But when I got to Williams and Conley, I really decided this would be my legacy and that I would make sure that I was not just about me and that it would, 
I would try to shame the rest of the bar into doing the same thing. Okay, but Sarah, Lisa actually is the worst person to ask about this. You are the person to ask about this because you are interviewing at a lot of different firms. Again, everyone knows you're brilliant, even if they don't um, know how funny you are, which I feel special (laughs) for. I don't know if I'm known for the right thing then. I don't don't know. (laughs) I think Sarah's... The first thing I ever said about her was she was the Terminator. I did not say she was a... You know, the first thing you said about me was that you liked my shoes and that we'd get along really well. I think that's probably true. <laughs> that is definitely true. <laughs> so you're interviewing at all these places. You meet Lisa. How how do you determine in the interview that it's going to work? What are you looking for? Did you know that this would be a mentoring situation? Uh, was it just that she was like smart and you know had a bunch of arguments? So great. Because to me... Um, I think that's really hard when you don't know someone. And of course, they're going to say all the right things. Oh, of course, I'm here to help you and to further your career. And this is, we're going to focus on you. But most of them, to Lisa's point, don't mean it. So how do you, how did you get this so right? Well, I like to get things right. So thank you. Um, But I actually am a big believer in thinking that interviews, especially casual ones, are a good read on what people be like as professionals. I mean, when you're looking at an appellate practice, and I started working with Lisa after clerking on the DC circuit. So when I was looking at firms, I remember meeting with Lisa in a Starbucks, which turned out to be one of our favorite locations. And a client. Um, And (laughs) just getting to know her a bit. And like, it was somewhat goofy because we did sort of talk about our shared like love of buying clothes uh, and very frivolous things that are, it turns out, like really good bonding activities (laughs) when we're actually colleagues. And then just also hearing the unvarnished Lisa. I mean, to Lisa's credit, like she doesn't do Washington fake. Like what you see is what you get. Like she is like how she's an argument, like in every other context. Um, And I liked it. So I feel like we hit it off. Uh, As I noted, she thought my shoes were great. So I thought like I could pass her fashion bar to the extent there was one. Um, And it was sort of a leap of faith that it really worked out well. I mean, I remember our first couple of weeks in the office together, like two of two of the firm's cases got granted. And so I was like off to the races on a water rights case, like drafting my first merits brief for Lisa, um, learning about like this just massive fight over water between like Texas and Oklahoma. And like, you know, despite loving Texas, we were fervently in the Oklahoma camp on that one. How could you, Lisa? How could you? It's our water. Can I tell another story? Well, it was Terrence. So that was North Texas, not South Texas. But um. One quick story about Sarah that we've been working together maybe a year and a half and she comes to me and says she's interviewing for a clerkship with Justice Thomas. And I said to her, wait, are you conservative? (laughs) (laughs) She goes, yes, Lisa. I was like, wow. I mean, I literally had no idea what her politics were. Little did I know. Oh my (laughs) God, was she conservative? But I mean, it's just kind of like, I just don't... Had you met her husband? Anything? Jeff was not maybe the closest attention to other markers, but that's okay. That's still Lisa's credit. She's not like doing political filter. Jeff likes rap music. He's one of he's one of he's one of my people. In certain contexts, um, so Sarah, another thing that we talked about with the law students was the choices of when to be the big fish in the little pond and when to be the little fish in the big pond, and how you thought so about good. that coming out of your clerkship and and your career trajectory. Such a great question. 
Yeah, that is a good question. So I guess with Lisa, I don't really have to feel like, am I a fish or am I some other kind of spirit animal? I mean, it's just sort of, it feels like a partnership where I learn a lot from Lisa, but there's not sort of like, I don't know, I feel like it's more of a family relationship sometimes. In fact, she sometimes calls me Rachel, her daughter's name. So I just get good answering a lot. Um, but I think there's sort of, there, it is like a common question for a lot of people. Just do you want to be at a place where you are one of, you know, like 15 people like you with your resume or not? And how do you differentiate yourself versus do you feel like you'll be at a, a place where you outgrow yourself? Like it's almost like a Goldilocks situation, actually. Like you're trying to find the right size for your personality and your your sort of like personal comfort. Like I don't really have great like, global advice to people because so much of it is do you like your colleagues and are you the kind of person who finds a little more um, comfort like safety and numbers working with people who are like you and learning from a bunch of people at your level um, or do you kind of like to be having having more riding on you but the downside being it, it's a smaller practice potentially so I feel like I mean we've also I guess both Lisa and I like have gone through that in our in our law firm setting um, just having an appellate practice that has grown so much, uh, especially with like the shift in firms. So there was one thing, so. Sarah, or Lisa, when you're talking about Sarah, you talked about how Sarah said, I, I was assertive. I want arguments. Um, and that really pinged for me. That that was very interesting because there's sort of a school of thought that says, wait a minute, should you be that assertive? Like, should you, if you're coming into a position, maybe you're interviewing or you're new, um, should you step forward and say, I, this is something I, I really want versus a more kind of passive approach? And how do you weigh that? Because I could imagine a situation, I guess a lot of it's in how it's done. You know, how, how, how you approach somebody um, with confidence matters a lot. The manner matters a lot. But, um, I, you know, I do think that's a really interesting question that a lot of younger lawyers ask themselves is, when, what's the line for saying, I'm ready, put me in coach, I'm ready to play? It's hard. I mean, with Luke um, McLeod, who's in the SG's office, I definitely was, I was the aggressor in trying to encourage him to do his first Supreme Court argument. And because he was doing so well doing trials, and he's a brilliant engineer and a fantastic patent and trial lawyer. But I just had seen him argue in the Fifth Circuit and it's like, oh my God, this guy's off the chart. So I, in same way with Amy Sahari, I definitely pressured her to, to do two, I guess. So um, in same way with some associates, I go to them and say, you need to do an argument. But it's hard because if you're not ready, you shouldn't have that cut against you or be ashamed. I mean, I do think we have this philosophy at our firm that the world is a very big place and people have very different strengths and weaknesses and, and there's room for everything. And so um, there are certain appellate lawyers who should be arguing because that's their strong suit. And then some who either shouldn't or should be doing, you know, brief writing or other types of work. So my advice to lawyers is figure out your young lawyers, figure out your strengths and weaknesses and, you know, run, 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 run from the weaknesses or try to shore them up, but just kind of lean into your strengths. But it's scary. And I, you know, like I said, I've been insecure most of my life professionally. It's very hard to um, be confident and say, you know, I want to do that argument. Like that just is such an unnatural feeling. And I remember coming to Williams and Conley and I guess it was 
was it 1990? And the advice, the, the advice to women then was you need to, it was the, basically the lean in thing. You need to be proactive. You need to. And I was like, I don't even know what those people are talking about. I'm not being proactive on anything. <laughs> I can barely, you know, find the dry cleaners and, and I just can't, I can't deal with this, whatever advice I'm getting. I just wasn't ready for it. So I, sometimes it's like, you can tell people to do something, but it just, they're just not ready. And that's okay. I wasn't ready until I was 30, 31 to sort of be, be a little more assertive. But I don't think I even got my assertive personality and argument until I was in my 40s, maybe argument number 14. She remembers it. Argument 14. I think I do remember it. <laughs> your, what was your strategic thinking, Sarah? That, okay, I feel like Lisa's going to be re- receptive to this, you know, or it, it was that kind of your default going in that I'm going to put the ball in the coach's court. I'm going to say, I'm ready. And it's then up to them to say yes or no. It was like quarter of the field when I asked Lisa for. Yeah. So before Sarah did a Supreme Court argument, there was no way I was going to, she was going to do it unless she was off the charts in her court of appeals. Her first one was great. You know, she was in front of um, the Sixth Circuit. It was a prison case and you won it. I don't know. Was it in front of Judge Sutton? I think it was a great Sixth Circuit Mm -hmm. panel and it was good. It was good. But then like the next one I saw, I was like, oh my God, she's incredible. And so when you see that same way with Luke, you just, you, you, you're just doing such a disservice as a person who's older and a mentor to not really, really promote someone when you see talent. I mean, that's a shame. Shame on you. My advice to people now is, especially for associates who are coming off of clerkships or like a little more senior to to really prioritize like trying to find a place where you can get federal courts of appeals appointments pretty early on. Um, and for me, that was key. Like Lisa really helped me get that first argument. And and that's sort of what I raised my hand and said, like, can you please help me get this? And Lisa delivered, like she called around and got one very quickly. Because um, if you don't sort of have some level of comfort before some courts, starting off in the Supreme Court is not exactly like where you start. Uh, they can crush your confidence pretty fast and they can tell if you're not having fun. But I think the confidence I had from doing a couple of court of appeals arguments before my first Supreme Court argument uh, and just feeling like this is something I feel like I know how to do, but also have fun doing uh, would come across. And so, yeah, I'm I'm very glad that Lisa was very receptive to sort of the the pitch on that. And the way you get a client or co-counsel to agree to have younger people do it is you have to put your own life on the line and say, the truth is I would trust Sarah with my life. And so, and she would do a better job. Not that she really needs an opportunity. I mean, that, no, that is not, that's not the line. That's not the move. It's, this is what's in the best interest. And you have to, that has to be actually true. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of this. Like a a lot of people listening are going to be like, yeah, that's all well and good. But the client's like, I hired Lisa Blatt. Who is Sarah? Back, let's call it four years ago. That's BS, Sarah. That's, those are people talking and justifying why they did the argument. That's not true. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. I want to do a little feminist manifesto now, uh, which is I have worked in uh, a few male-dominated areas. That's and, a shock. <laughs> yeah. Shocking. I know. And yet, if you look at who my bosses have been, it's probably been about 50-50 women, meaning I'm working for women an outsized percentage of the time even in places where probably the people who have those jobs is like 80-20 men. Fascinating. So I worked for Barbara Comstock. I clerked for Edith Jones. I worked for Katie Biber on the Romney campaign. My favorite, talking about interviews and like whether you're going to hit it off, after I got fired from the Hill, after six weeks of work, not great, I went to the Washington Post classified ads and found an opening at the FAA, we fly planes. Uh, and I went into interview and I had just seen Team America. And she asked me what I had done that weekend. And I said, I'd just seen Team America. And then we both at the same time started singing, America, yeah, it's time to say the mother day, yeah. I'm bleeping myself. <laughs> and the fact that we both started seeing that, it was the equivalent of you and Sarah talking about shoes. It was like, this is my person. We're going to find, uh, you know, in the tough parts, in the hardest moments, we're going to have something to fall back on, like a, you know, a a personal connection. Um, It has not been lost on anyone in the Supreme Court bar that Lisa has argued uh, more cases than any other woman in Supreme Court history, though perhaps a low bar, uh, lower, far lower than it should be. Uh, And that y'all are um, a little feminine duo out there arguing all these cases and doing really well, what do you think is the pluses, minuses? What's your feminist manifesto on why you're two women? Or is it just coincidental? Which is also a totally acceptable answer. Sarah is it's coincidental. Um, I just, like, I do think it was, she's just off. I've never seen somebody so talented of a writer. I've never seen anything like it. And she has a killer instinct like no other. And um, I could not have achieved really any success in the last, you know, a lot. I mean, she abandoned me for some, I don't know, I think it was some, some past administration was before Biden. (laughs) Um, And then a clerkship with, um, with Justice Thomas, but uh, literally she's been the source of my success, but I don't, I don't think the fact she was a woman was really neither here nor there to me. Um, The, I think it is, I mean, we have strong, like I know Beth Brinkman disagrees. I, I remember I did at the last women's panel I did, I was called a disgrace by every woman on the panel. It was the day President Trump was elected and I did a women's bar event. It was the last female event I'll ever do because everyone disagreed with me about advice for women. And it was like, I don't need this. What um, was your so advice I know that, that I'm definitely going to agree with? To not follow your passion, don't follow your dreams and just do whatever you're good at and stop, stop being passionate. Just Nobody gives a shit about your passion. They <laughs> just want somebody who will win. Like, I really could care less about a doctor's passion or <laughs> I think I've said this. My, Do you really want an architect who's passionate about his work? No. 
I mean, seriously, it's like, just build my house. So, (laughs) or surgeon. Shut up and build. (laughs) Surgeon, the notion that I want that person passionate. It's like, just don't mess up when I'm under the knife. So I, that, and it was just, I remember it was Dahlia Lithwick. Mixing next appalling. question of what Lisa's passions are. <laughs> Should be in the, something to do with romance, presumably. But the, I think the, but Dahlia Lithwick said it was appalling. And I was like, okay. Um, so the, the pro, but, but I do think, and I think I wrote about this in that, this lady lawyer article. I just think women, like I said, have so many disadvantages. And your story, Sarah, is unbelievable because I just see men bonding. And I see, um, I don't see women bonding as much. And I have not, all my bosses that have been amazing were men, especially Paul Clement, who I hold, you know, my entire career is, is, he's responsible for my entire career and being a lawyer and not quitting. I I just think women just have a, a much harder time. And in the Supreme Court bar in particular, it's, it's a job that requires a lot of salesmanship and bullying and sharp elbows and bravado. And I don't think women are, are as wired for that. We're much more self-aware and we're not willing to uh, oversell ourselves like men are. I left out two female bosses that I've had because I had uh, specific stories for each of them. So I obviously worked for Carly Fiorina. And she would tell me that men walk into the room with credibility women have to earn the credibility. So it's not that you can't get there. You can. You just are going to work a little bit harder to, to prove yourself you know, in every situation where men will get that handed to them I'm a little right more here. easily. Like, Lisa, I'm, do you... I'm just... <laughs> David, when I... So little do people know, although you probably can guess, like David and I talk all the time off this podcast as well. And I call David for life advice all the time. David, you know this. You know that I say oh, this yes, to you all yes, the time. One hundred percent. I just had to interject. <laughs> like, you know, I feel I, I'm like the only guy in the room right now. <laughs> when you say walk into a room, I mean I've walked into a room for the last fifteen years with a giant Hello Kitty phone, and that was always people are like, "Why are you doing that?" And I'm like, "Because this is my f you to every man in the room." So it's not like I'm trying to walk in the room and get respect. I want to walk in the room and just. It is a power move. In a true power move, one of our clients actually purchased for Lisa like an enormous Hello Kitty like background for the giant iPhones back in the day. Like she's gone through several iterations and they're great. And I have a Hello Kitty beanbag in my office. I mean, I just get so tired of the whatever that lean in crap. I just, it's just too much. You don't power pose in the bathroom. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Sarah and I are power posing right now. Uh, So Sarah, my other boss who you know uh, was Rachel Brands at the Office of Legal Policy, who is an incredible human. Um, She's amazing. Talk about... So uh, I hope Rachel won't mind that I'm telling tales out of school here. But, you know, I wanted so badly for her to like me. And and I was the only female intern I totally get that. Right? And so I'm trying too hard. Like Look, everyone wants to be Rachel. So it's like, no surprise. <laughs> that's right. She was prom queen, you know? She's got that posture. Yes. Oh, she does. So, so, so <laughs> I go to her as like the only female thinking I'm going to like bond with her over being female, like in the most ham-handed way. Like I say something really dumb about like, sexism, right? You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> what the icebreaker is like sexism discussed, right? <laughs> and she, um, one, of, one of Rachel's things that she does that I find so 
fascinating because I just don't know anyone else who, who does it her way. Most people, when you say something they disagree with, will be like, yeah, but also, you know, like there's this way to like sort of move the conversation. Rachel will be like, no, I think that's incorrect. <laughs> and it can feel really awkward. Um, and so in that situation, she was like, I absolutely disagree. And she's, she, but she gave me this then nugget of brilliance that I've kept with me now for 15 years. And she said, Sarah, uh, if you look for sexism around every corner, you'll find it. And it was just so, um, uh, at the moment, crushing. I was like, and I'm never speaking to her again. I will hide for the rest of the summer. She hates me. Um, and now, of course, we're very good friends as well. Uh, and she's my neighbor. Um, but Sarah, I wonder where you find that line between you know going to Lisa and being like, ah, this is because I'm a woman versus like, doesn't matter. You got to win the game. She's a right-wing nut. She's never going to say something like that. <laughs> I know. I know. I guess for me, it's like Lisa wants to win as badly as I want to win. And it was great to find someone who really wants to win as badly as I do. And just like really wants to beat the crap out of the other side in a like ethical manner. But like really just that is like what drives her. And also that Lisa was... I like that Lisa is not someone who like pretends to be extremely secure in all moments and like pretends that like she has a thousand percent, like uh, everything is always perfect and together. Like that is not how Lisa is. And I found it refreshing and very reassuring to be around someone like that because I also like, I'm not, you know, like 1000% secure about everything. I'm like fairly neurotic. Um, (laughs) So Lisa was very, just a good personality match on that front. Maybe it's because we're both women, but I think it's just like, we have some sort of personality trait that, uh, that despite our many differences on politics and other things is a, is a real commonality. I'll tell you two very funny stories with major, major corporations. One, when I was starting out and I said, I, you know, I think you really need a, a woman appellate lawyer. It'll really help bring, you know, some softness to the brand and, and it'd be great. And clients said, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and then another story, he still hired me, but another one was, um, was another after a Supreme Court case for a major, you know, corporation, which a lot of women in private practice don't get to argue for, you know, these major corporations said, thank you. This is one of the few cases in the last five years. It's been argued by a woman and it really means a lot that the company did that. And the guy said, I don't even know what you're talking about. It never occurred to me. And I was like, okay, Lisa, you just need to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I think that um, Rachel Brand and Katie Biber are two women who I'm just incredibly close with, who I've also worked for. And there is something about authenticity and a feeling that you can be just wholly authentic and a killer and kind of weird and quirky and have, you know, Rachel's posture or, I mean, Katie Biber's like three feet tall um, for those who have ever interacted with uh, Katie Biber. Well, She's not. But um, but like yeah. this, there is something about uh, having a, a another woman, I think, show well, that as a success. Yeah, I'll just say, because David, I... I don't think you're a cookie cutter man. And I just want to make you feel good about yourself. Um, But I just, men have a much easier script in how to dress, act, look, uh, that kind of stuff. I do, I do think, you know, it's gotten a little bit, it's gotten a little bit better for men being more of an individual and doing sort of leaning in into, you know, who they are. Um, But at least we move past socks being the way that they show their personalities. That was a horrible era. 
see, look, I have socks and they have a color on them. It's totally cool to have like a beard now. I mean, it's just amazing. (laughs) Like men have come so far. It's wonderful. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, but I do think still, I do feel badly that I do think there is a script for a woman to succeed. And it's not somebody who dresses like me or acts like me. It's more, you're better off just trying to conform to the middle. And it's just the safest path to success. I hate to say it, but it is true. Sarah, there's something else that I think makes both of you stand out a little bit, which is um, back in the day, I mean, you know, I sort of have this eras of feminism, you know, there's like uh, feminism 1.0. I think we're like in a 3.0 situation now. Um, but like to be as successful as either of you are, let's say 40 years ago, I don't think either of you would have probably had children. Um, maybe you wouldn't have even been married. This idea that you can sort of be a full person and a woman in a career hard charging um, is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, you and Lisa both have husbands and children. And I know Lisa has a dog and I think you got one since the last time I've been at your house. Oh yeah. Tyson is yeah. very handsome. <laughs> you know, I've no, never heard a dog described as handsome. Oh, Tyson's handsome. I mean, he's like the Wikipedia freak. He's super <laughs> handsome. He could be a dog model. It's just like, I don't have spare time and Jeff doesn't either to like get him off the ground. Sarah, <laughs> let me just stop you on what Justice Kagan once said. And I, she was correct. You don't see all the times where she failed. And you don't see all the times where I've been humiliated and failed and turned down and all the horrible, you know, embarrassing things that have happened to me. So it's, it is just, it's like saying, oh, that, that marriage looks perfect. It's like, don't, don't kid yourself that unless you're Paul Clement, (laughs) uh, most people fail a lot and, and aren't successful. And so in your definition of success, my feeling is if you don't feel successful, you better change your definition of success because you're going you're gonna to die a very lonely and unhappy person. My job, I'm sorry, my definition of success was being a mom. That's all I cared about. And that's all like, there's no amount of money you could pay me ever to, 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 to there's just no amount of money that would have paid me to separate from my kids or not be part-time for most of, almost still part-time. So the most important thing to me ever has been my kids and then my dog and then my husband. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that that's a a previously known hierarchy. (laughs) Otherwise, this could be... It has to have like a rebuttal podcast with David on it. (laughs) (laughs) But I I just think, and so it is a myth to think you can have it all. That's the other thing I don't like. I just think it's crazy. It's, I just, it's just... It's just, I don't even understand that. You can't have it all. There's always trade-offs. True for men too. It's just, it's always true that every time, you know, you just, choices have consequences. Um, but as Jeff Wall told me when I was turned down for one of these jobs that I always wanted, with every, you know, door that closes, a window opens. And it was one of the best pieces of advice. Wait, seriously, Jeff Wall said that to you? Yeah, when I, so my lifelong dream, it was to get a job in the Obama administration and I was rejected from like 10 jobs and I called up Jeff Wall. We were sort of, you know, like work spouses and he gave me the sort of a turning point life advice was that he said, Lisa, you know, when you're very old and about to die, will you think, oh my God, if I'd only had that job of civil appellate, if I'd only had one more argument, if I'd only had one more, you know, what are you going to be thinking? And 
you're going to be thinking about the relationships you've had along the way. And so I tell that story all the time and it almost gets me emotional. And I remember telling the story to Judge Harris, Pam Harris on the Fourth Circuit, and it's like telling her clerks. And she said, well, that's not what I'm going to be thinking about at all. I'm going to be thinking about what good I did for the world. And I literally just went, oh, dear Lord, I can't. So everyone has, but it's sometimes it's a good check on yourself. Really, what does life mean to you? And if it, to me, it's the, to me, it's all about the relationships that, that were made along the way and the people. And that makes Jeff Wall, sorry, that makes Jeff Wall sound like really sincere and emotionally available in a way that I do not consider him. This was a long time ago. <laughs> we know I'm loving this. I was pretty upset. I'm loving this turn in the conversation because it's just turned into a, kind of indictment on workism, sort of this, this you are, your identity is your work, is your yeah. job. Well, I, I think if you need to work to make money if you need money. Well, yeah. Or you're like, if you were born rich, you need work to, you know, I don't know, you go to charities or something or whatever those rich people do. But I mean, I just, I, I think work generally sucks. One of my favorite Lisa moments is like early on when we worked together, she told me like the famous, maybe it's not famous to you guys, but the Peter Kreisler man on a couch story, which is like, Lisa, you can tell it, but it's sort of, you know, Peter Kreisler obviously has had like some very, very cool government jobs, very, very senior person in the Bush administration, civil division, but had like a very good perspective that he imparted and Lisa has popularized on government the man jobs. The couch is like, the best. You might have this job for a couple of years and everyone knows your name because you are super duper fancy. And then, you know, you're waiting in a pitch 10 years later and you're just a man on a couch. <laughs> no one knows who you are anymore. Like, you have to keep it in perspective. Like, it is important. And whenever I tell this story, some law students go, who's Peter Kaiser? <laughs> I'm like, exactly, exactly. He's just a man on a couch. But all of us, anyone, they're, we're just going to be, like, there is a sense of, yeah, this I think helps to grow, grow up in Texas. Like, I'll never forget the moment my middle school age son said, who's Bono? <laughs> and... I was like, yep, it's all fleeting. Like, it's all fleeting. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. deadly. <laughs> that hurts. That hurts. But I do, I, I think you want to be good at your job. You want to do well. And that's the whole thing for me, If because my main goal was to be a mom and to be able to, you know, shop at Neiman's and so forth, is to make sure I was doing something I was good at so I could have some flexibility with work and and things like that. And I think if you're always sort of striving and super ambitious, it can be very difficult to get what you want in the other aspects of your life. And then all of a sudden, you know, you just put too many eggs in the, the work basket and you're just not a good place to be. Okay. But I'm going to push back on this because sure. I think that is excellent advice when you turn 40. Agreed. It's a little hard though, I think for a 25 year old to hear that and be like, okay, but you were a super striver for a long time. And now you get to say yeah. that because your kids are graduating yes. law school and you're Lisa Blatt. But what about those of us who are still out there even trying to get on the ladder to climb the rungs of the ladder? You should work hard in your 20s, I do think. But that's also, at least for women, a time in early 30s where you're running out of time to have children if you want to have children. Yeah, I think it's just, you can't, like, you can't have it all, but you also, like, there are different seasons to what you're doing. And I think once you reach a certain point, if you if you gauge your life of, like, I'm a fancy person, like, which fancy job is my next fancy job? It's a recipe. You, I think you start to see in your 40s, it's and onwards, like, it really is a recipe for unhappiness. So it is nice to, 
like, I'm glad that Lisa, like, sort of fronts that she does not want to be confirmed for anything ever, that she has no such plans. Like, that's not her deal. Because I, uh, uh, I think it would be exhausting to work with someone like that. Yeah, for men, too, it's the same thing. That, that you only have that short window of time to be a dad and then it, and also to, you know, not have your wife cheat on you. So it's just... <laughs> Okay. Sorry, that took a little <laughs> What is that window, Lisa? When does the cheating window start or stop? <laughs> <laughs> At some point, she gives up, but, but really, there's a time where she's looking around and still shopping. <laughs> I just think you, you really, it's. So I, this this shouldn't be news to anyone in their 20s. I mean, I do have kids. I have a son who's 24 and a daughter who's, who's 21. I, they're they're, they're going to have they want they 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 want it all but uh there's just that balance of the given the, the amount of pressure and stress to do well whether it's for you or because of your parents because of your peers or just because you need a job like I did I just needed to a way to get out of poverty and so all that mattered to me is I had a paycheck um and then I came to Washington and I realized all that mattered to people was what job they had and what you know what administration they worked for very foreign concept to me in Texas it was did you you know did, could you join a country club it was what summer camp did your kids go to country club etc yeah and it's just i literally just cared about making sure i could pay the rent so I, yeah and i just think sometimes people in Washington they've had such different lives that they have time to sit around and bicker over everything including you know But I I do feel like there's, and I try to explain this to people in my more like honest conversations that I have about, there's a time for grabbing brass rings and for resume grubbing, I call it. Um, You'll see plenty of resume grubbing on the very people who are telling you not to resume grub. They did. Um, That's how they got to the position where they're lecturing you about anything. I think (laughs) that's fair (laughs) that you need to work hard. I would not do what I do, which is watch a lot of TV. Oh, I I totally disagree. I'm a professional (laughs) streamer and it's very enriching to my life. (laughs) It does. Okay. I know. No, that's all I do now. I'm saying in my 20s, don't don't watch TV. (laughs) Work hard and make sure you have a healthy mental health. But realize at some point, if all you care about is collecting the next job, you're going to plateau inevitably and you're going to be miserable. This is the Arthur Brooks from Strength to Strength book. I think it's so, so good because it, it is. It's like, look, you've done this. You did it for your 20s and your 30s. Good for you. But all of that's going to have diminishing returns. And I, I I pick on John Kerry, who I've never met and I do not know. But he seemed like someone who based his whole life around trying to become president of the United States. And he didn't get it. And I just wonder if he like thinks he's a failure what? in some regard when like... Yeah, it worked for Joe Biden. It worked for Justice Kagan. I do feel like Elena Kagan spent her whole life for this job and she got it, but she's one person. And I feel like that with parents. Right, that, and, and there's hundreds who didn't and, and somehow are unhappy. And there's hundreds and thousands of millions of parents who do everything they can. And most of the time it will fail to try to turn their children into something they want. And every once in a while, you'll create this perfect You get Tiger robot. Woods. Yeah. Sarah, are there, are there days where you get home and you feel like you failed at both work and parenting and wifing? Oh yeah, that's called every day. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just a, it's a question of like how you fail and how you deal with failure um, and how you try to adjust. So there's never a perfect day. I have three kids; they're five, three, and one. Um, I have a husband who also has a very active job. Um, he also does like Supreme Court appellate and also trial stuff um, at a small firm. And uh, we have a dog. We have lots going on. Um, well, and let's be clear. Sarah literally hangs up on me all the time. And I just, 
to just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sometimes it's like, sorry, but I got peed on. Like, I gotta no, go. No, <laughs> she just, we're talking substance and the phone just hangs up. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, she's just lucky because it doesn't even phase me. She literally just hangs up on me and I just, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, Lisa, I gotta go. Like, you know, Allie, our three-year-old is like, hangs just, up. it's, yeah, it's like, she's here, like, gotta go. So Lisa is very understanding one. Like she knows it's not because I hate what her. What are you going to do? Someone's, you know. It's like needs my attention desperately. I'm making dinner. It's on fire. You know, there is no perfect day. The days are, I think like, it's nice that I can be, that Lisa knows that this is like how my life is. Um, and that you, like the joy of being a parent is also figuring out how to rearrange your life around your kids in a way that lets you do things on a different schedule. Um, and it's not always great, but it's also like fun, actually. Yeah, I will say that this just does play into, because I, you know, I've been teaching now with um, Paul Clement, I think for five or six years, and we teach year round. We teach uh, both at law school and college. And Paul, I've learned so much from Paul. Paul is very doctrinal. I mean, he's brilliant, thinks cases all have rhyme and reason. And I think it's all about, you know, facts and reality and the equities. But we do have these wonderful different approaches to the law. And I think part of it is just our personality is that Paul is a true intellectual and I'm more someone who likes pop culture and keeping it real. And so I just look at cases a little bit differently. You know, I try to brief the law, but I always think these, whatever judges or justices are real people with real emotions and, um, you know, we just have different approaches to the way we advocate. Uh, both, we have a lot of fun, um, but we just have very different approaches and it's wonderful. Like I, I love, I love the, you know, when Paul and I talk about cases and how we do oral argument, very different, but fun. Can I ask, I know we're running out of time, but there's a contingent of our, contingent of our audience that has been underserved. And that is the baked contingent who just heard that there's a CBD case at the Supreme. And so, Tell us about the CBD case because, dude, what's going on? Sarah, you can take it. Um, we have, we have, I think, four, just, you know, four really fun petitions. Um, but the CBD is one that speaks to me as a consumer of CBD. So I think the first and most important fact is this is not necessarily for the big audience due to the fact oh. that CBD is 0% THC usually. Uh, it is lawful under federal law. Um, and... It's a, a case that is dear to my heart as like the doctrinal half of this duo because I love RICO cases um, and cases about like, how can you be injured under this statute that has been harnessed into something that everyone seems to be able to sue under. And it's essentially a product defect claim that has been fashioned into a RICO case. Like, you know, the claim is the person took a, TH, a, a supplement that was CBD. Um, it turned out that it was not allegedly THC-free, failed a drug test, lost the job. And so the, the question is, can you have that be an injury under RICO, despite the fact that RICO bars personal injuries as cognizable? So I think it's a fun case on doctrine. But wait, David. David, there's more fun cases. We have to run through a couple more of these cert petitions because they are really fun. The bribery... Whether if you bribe someone after the fact, is that a so quid you pro give quo them bribe? Money after the fact, not bribe them. <laughs> Whatever, Lisa. We know you're the advocate, but if you bribe them after the fact, <laughs> that's the question presented. If it it's a gratuity, a not a bribe a at that point. Yes, 
Just that's a great case. So it's a gratuity. And again, think about how it works for campaign finance. It's like if you can construe literally everything as an after the fact payment, which is true of campaign finance, true of campaign donations, all sorts of other stuff, including the facts of this case involving the mayor of an Indiana town. Uh, what's left? What like if if the government is not held to quote unquote pro quo bribery, like the floodgates kind of open, and that's that's what the Fifth Circuit has said. The court the loves Fifth this. Have said they, love, saying, uh, they love this Section eighteen USC six six six. They love public corruption type cases. I mean, who does not six six six? Like it sounds like there might be something <laughs> wrong with. This I mean, public corruption okay. just then- is great. You'll have Jack Daniels as a client, but now you also have Starbucks as a client. You have this uh, really interesting NRLB case, but is it the first time that pumpkin spice lattes have made an appearance in a cert petition, Sarah? Does Sarah and I... Go ahead, Sarah. Uh, yes. And they're really on my mind because it it's fall and we are huge fans of Starbucks in, in basically all aspects. Uh, but the case is also just a fascinating administrative law issue about when can the NLRB get injunctions? Like, does it have to play by the rules that everyone else gets for injunctions or do they get a special rule? And this is why Sarah's into the SEC case. But the question I have is, given that I assume your offices are filled with Jack Daniels now and Starbucks... Can we assume and that y'all CBD, occasionally, CBD, after like, hours, combine all of this? <laughs> yeah, Sarah and I met at Starbucks, little... and um, I remember the first summer I went away working for Sarah because I was took her to coffee every day. I actually gave her a very large Starbucks gift card so to make sure she could pay for her Starbucks habit. The Starbucks gift card was expect... like, if you can't have Lisa in person, it was a bribe. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bribe. Also a gratuity. We're huge, 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 huge Starbucks. My dog loves the puppuccinos there. And yeah. It's a good thing there's a Starbucks right across well, We the do have a bunch us. of, you know, I wow. do love fun cases. I do love energy cases with energy. Um, Sarah likes the doctrine. I like the fun facts. And this will be the duo that we're watching this term, all the terms coming, many terms yet to be. Thank you guys so much for joining us and all of the billable increments that you have spent with us this morning. Much, much appreciated. Thank you for not trashing my arguments. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for not trashing my arguments. We love your arguments. No, seriously. (laughs) If you had heard our conversations about your arguments, I think you would be quite pleased. We, We... you know what's funny though? Because David and I talk about this offline sometimes because sometimes someone will give a bad argument. You know, maybe it's their first time arguing. Maybe it's their not their first time. No, I've seen, I've heard a lot of bad arguments. And the like David and I will talk about whether um, to, to mention that on the podcast. And I think we have a few rules here, right? Like generally speaking, um, you don't trash other people. Like you don't know them. You don't know what their day was, what happened that morning or that night, or you know, maybe it just didn't go their way. Maybe they had an off date. Maybe they didn't. Maybe that's just them. In which case, why do you need to trash them? They know it was bad. No, and we make mistakes too. People make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and same thing with law students. Try very hard not to like, you know, some law student publishes something that's not good or crazy. It's like you don't need to go after a law student by name. You know, you can take on their arguments. It's well. It's social media, though. It's very easy to go on Twitter and, you know, and just say things. Um, But I do think podcasts have an enormous influence on law students. I don't know any that don't listen to this one. Um, It just, the podcasts are... Oliver Summers, you're the favorite podcast. No, they have an enormous influence. Just so you know, I I tried. I offered to, um, when I heard how much money Neil Katyal was making, I offered Paul to do a podcast with Paul and he 
resoundingly rejected me. And so Paul and I will not be doing a podcast. I offered to split 80-20 with him and he said no. Wow. Wow. I hope you guys are making as much. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Whatever. No. Paul won't do it. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, after now Cannon is bragging about being next to Taylor Swift and Aaron Rodgers because he represents the NFL. um, And you guys are just getting some pumpkin spice lattes. I feel like... The, the Lisa Sarah duo, like maybe y'all need a podcast. Yeah, Paul wants. I think we will break the internet. <laughs> and by we, I mean Lisa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if Dahlia Lithwick hates it, then uh, I don't know what to say. You, know. you guys are the best. Thank you. We thank really you enjoyed it. David, thank, thank you, you for putting so up with us, our little three against one. I loved every minute of it. We're two again, too. It's, te- it's Tennessee versus Texas. I, st- I'm I, I by that. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. All right. Well, hopefully we can buy y'all some pumpkin spice lattes in the future. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.